G'day guys, welcome to the Name Spirit Podcast. I am your host Isaac, aka Shrek. It's awesome to have you with me. Today we're getting geeky again. I know it's becoming a habit, but today it's marine science and uh, particularly with its application to spearing. A lot of uh, spearers that have been going a long while have a real sort of uh, mindset towards conservation and thinking about science and how you know the natural world works. I mean, it's one of the awesome things about our sport is we get to observe uh, marine life and all its glory every time we go spearing. And uh, it's not just about shooting fish, sometimes it's uh, there's more to it than that. And um, so today I took this opportunity to chat with three and a half marine scientists, um, all Kiwi, all, all based in New Zealand, and uh, it was a it was a good it was a good conversation. I'm not sure how the sound quality is going to come out, so just uh, apologies in advance. But nevertheless, there's a ton of awesome information in here about uh, all sorts of things. And uh, so we've got Irene Middleton, Libby Liggins, and David Aguirre, along with Blair Herbert, who was kind enough to help me put this thing together. And um, all all fish nerds. Well, David's a little bit different. He's an invertebrates geek, so. Um, all marine biologists and all very interesting people. So we'll get we'll get to that just just in a moment. Before then, a um, couple of quick shout outs. Um, two reviews. Love it. More Hawaii says uh, SurfKid11. He says, uh, some great info and discussions. Love the banter. Wants to hear more guests from Hawaii. No problem, man. Uh, we'll see what we can do coming up back end of the year. There's plenty of talented spearers over there in Hawaii. It's a beautiful part of the world. Um, also got Sean Lantini says... This podcast gets me through work every day. Since I started listening, I've brought all my gear and started diving. Can't wait until I bring home my first fish. Keep making episodes, please. So cheers for that, uh, Sean. And um, this week, featured spearfishing club, the Agua Verdes Club. Now, they're located in Louisiana from the Florida Panhandle to Louisiana. Uh, their club is growing. It's very active and some awesome people involved. It says uh, Agua Verdes was formed to connect with like-minded freedivers in an organized club to share information, knowledge, plan trips and training sessions, host annual tournaments and promote safe diving and spearfishing. The club inc- includes freedivers from the Florida Panhandle to Louisiana. We keep an up-to-date records board and photo gallery, so be sure to check those out and see who's shooting the biggest fish in the club. And uh, you can find out about spearfishing clubs or submit your own spearfishing club at noobspiro.com. If you head up into the About menu, there is a New Spiro Spearfishing Club Connections page. Love it if we had um, more and more spearfishing clubs listed in there. That way, listeners from all over the world can connect and find a club in their area. I think it's a fantastic uh, way to improve your spearfishing really quickly. Um, The competitions are often friendly, sometimes very competitive, but nevertheless, it's a great place to learn. Hey, I don't want to muck around too long. Let's hook into today's interview with these awesome marine scientists. It's a little confusing who's talking at times, but nevertheless, I enjoyed it anyway. Let's get into it. This episode of the Noob Spirit Podcast is brought to you by spearfishing.com.au. You might as well check out some gear while you're thinking about spearing and get an idea of what you want to buy later on down the track. Everyone's looking to upgrade something, whether it's your spear gun, your wetsuit, your float. It doesn't matter what it is. Head over to spearfishing.com.au. Fantastic reviews from a whole bunch of people just like you. People that love spearing. If you like, head into the stores. Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney or Perth. There's 70 passionate team members that can give you some help getting some idea about what to buy next. But uh, the online shopping experience is fantastic too. And if you shop online, for every purchase over $200, if you use the code NoobSparrow, you save $20. Thanks for supporting the NoobSparrow podcast and shopping with spearfishing.com.au. 
Welcome to the Noob Superhero Podcast. I'm joined online by Irene Middleton, Libby Liggins, David Aguirre, and Blair Herbert, the quintessential Kiwi fish nerd. But all, all of these guys are fish nerds. Can you guys um, just go around the table and introduce yourselves a bit? Yeah, sure. Sure. Want me to start? I'm Irene, by the way. Um, cool. Yeah, I am. Um, so I'm a, um, a PhD candidate at Mass University working with um, Libby and Dave. Um, but I've been working as a marine scientist for probably the last 11 or 10 years and um, finally decided to go a little bit crazy and do my PhD with these guys. Um, wow. And I, 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 I just love fish. Like fish are my jam. Um, dolphins, whales, yeah, whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, any any fish stuff I'm really into, and particularly um, like the weird tropical fishes that come into New Zealand. So that's kind of what I'm studying, whether or not they're increasing or kind of their passions in New Zealand. Is that your PhD thesis? Yeah, yeah. So looking at the patterns of their distribution, whether or not they're changing, and um, also kind of using novel data or different types of data to um, figure out their patterns. So that's where a lot of the um, sparrows and fish, uh, fishermen and stuff come in. So their records, incorporating them into the kind of published science. Okay, cool. And I've got Libby and David sharing a set of earphones quite adorably. Um <laughs> where where are you guys based in New Zealand and and you're obviously uh, at Massey as well? Yeah, yeah. So um resident at Hatfields Beach, just north of Auckland. And uh, yeah, so we're at Massey University. Um, we're both lecturers at Massey University, so my research is really closely aligned with what Irene described. So interested in how biodiversity in general is responding to the changes that we're seeing to our global climate, but particularly our ocean climate. We know things are, have changed, but we don't have a very good gauge on how the fishes and the invertebrates and whatnot are, um, are responding to that. So my research uses um, methods like what Irene described and what Irene's doing, but also um, using genetics to try and understand whether we're maybe seeing different, um, different groups of the same species moving into New Zealand potentially. So um, wow. movement of okay. genes and whatnot. But um, cool. yeah, so my, and, and to do our work, we uh, we do a bit of spearfishing, but I have to admit that um, I'm not so much the hunter-gatherer type, I'm more the hunter-science type. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. So my my, uh, my spearing involves um, targeting very small damselfish a lot of the time, so a little bit different from the typical spearow, I think. Yeah, cool. That's very interesting, though. And what about you, David? So uh, spearfishing is my hobby. I tend not to study fish, so mix work and play together. Um, but I am also a, a researcher and a lecturer at Massey Uni. Uh, my research focuses mostly on seaweeds and corals, so things which are the foundations for tropical and temperate ecosystems. And where I cross over with the interests of uh, Libby and Irene is how those sorts of communities are going to change uh, with climate change and how that's going to impact what species live where. Awesome. And we've also got Blair, which is a it's a real honour to have Blair on, the um, the founder of Eat What You Kill group on Facebook. <laughs> you need new material, mate. Uh, nah, nah the, everyone's going to get this gag now because it's been running for several episodes. So um, <laughs> how do you introduce yourself, Blair? You're really good at this by now. Oh, what do you want me to say? <laughs> well, you're a holder of, like, multiple records and um, – what else? Oh, I'm I, I just a guy who goes diving and, um, you know, sort of 
I, I really like fish as well, but not as much as these other guys. Um, You're really selling it to the listeners here, Blair. <laughs> eh? You're really selling it to the community here. The, the listeners are just, they're just overawed. <laughs> oh, mate. I don't know. Like, if you go out either to catch a feed or if you don't see anything that's worthwhile eating, you get something that's worthwhile putting in a jar for these guys, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and it's much appreciated. So how did, you, how did you hook up with these guys, Blair? And, like, what was, um, how did the, all these interactions start? Um, can't, I was, it's, Irene started a um, What's That Fish page, and so uh, uh, that sort of looks at where the tropical fish are in New Zealand and what their accepted ranges are and that kind of thing, and just look how that changes, and um, you know, me and uh, Walton and another mate of ours, John Anderson, have spared quite a few odd fish, so um yeah, we've been in contact for, for quite a while over that sort of thing. These guys organised, um, no, it was, it was Irene actually organised a workshop, but these guys, other other two were here as well, at um, Auckland Museum. So it was a workshop sort of establishing ranges and things. Okay, well, so Irene, tell us a little bit about this page. What's what's that fish? Yeah, cool. It's just, uh, um, so Libby um, and Dave and I, particularly Libby and I, have been working on um, trying to get something similar to, um, you might be familiar with it over in Aussie, um, Red Maps, a range extension database mapping system, which is um, looking at where fish occur and then getting people like sparrows and fishermen and people that are out in the water a lot um, to record, you know, unusual fish. Because um, they're out there, and us as scientists, most of the time we're just behind a computer and um, crunching numbers. So having a whole bunch of people out there that know what they're looking for, or um, you know, if we set some ideas around which species we're interested in, um, is incredibly useful. And there's so much knowledge out there. So mm-hmm. we just thought, as part of the PhD, that was a big part of the PhD, um, kind of gathering all that data together. We'd I'd set up a little Facebook page and see, you know, just put some of the information out there and see how much feedback we got. And um, it kind of went a little bit crazy, to be honest, and we didn't really <laughs> expect to get the level of engagement that we did. But it's been it's been wicked. Like we've got, um, like you said, um, Blair and um, Pat and John and a whole bunch of other um, sparrows um, in New Zealand have got first records for a lot of new new to New Zealand species. And um, yeah, it's it's pretty crazy the amount of time that sparrows spend in the water and actually looking around. Um, yeah, the the number of species that they've actually found is is huge. It's a bit of a numbers game. These fish are super rare and um, there's only so many scientists in New Zealand and marine scientists who are qualified to ID fish. But, you know, there's heaps of sparrows, <laughs> heaps yeah, of people in New Zealand's coastline who love being in the water. And, um, yeah, it's just a numbers game. There's more of more people in the water than uh, there are marine scientists. So why not harness your eyes, <laughs> make them our own? And uh, it seems that from the feedback we got on the Facebook group um, that we're sort of filling a niche for the Sparrow community as well, hoping, helping to uh, ID some of these critters. Yeah, cool. All right, so how many people have you got on the group? And maybe Louie can help out. And how do you collate that data and, and use it? Well, I actually think Irene's better to answer that one. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'll take the I don't, I'm not, I, I don't know um, the exact numbers. I think it's over, it's about 1,500 um, people on that page now, which is crazy. Um, I thought it'd be like, you know, a group of like 20 odd fish nerds that might want to get things ID'd every now and again. Um, but you get more and more people sending records. And a lot of it's um, just 
people that have gone out fishing and it might be a native fish that they just can't ID or they can't find a, you know, a centralised point to get that ID from, which is which is cool. Um, but there's also been a heap of um, new species come through. And, um, yeah, like we've put calls out to go, oh, hey, we're looking for new lizard fish species. <laughs> and then Blair comes through and <laughs> shoots a lizard fish that's a new new to New Zealand species. So, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy, um, the collective kind of... Um, info that's out there and then currently that workshop that Blair was talking about was um, part of collating that data so there wasn't really um, like a really solid set of information out there about where these species already occur um, so we got all of the New Zealand kind of fish nerds in a room together people from Te Papa from the different museums Auckland Museum taxonomists a um, whole bunch of fishermen that had just been out for a really long time divers underwater photographers and we kind of came to a consensus about where these things had been seen before so we have a starting point to figure out if they are changing and I don't know if Libby and Dave want to talk more about that as well. Yeah, so the idea is, I guess, um, so we get these, you know, single records from people who go out and see things, but collectively that forms a bit of a database that we can better understand their ranges, but also start to understand which species are going to be those ones that can tell us about change. So some of them, we might start to see patterns um, of increasing or increasing in their geographic extent in New Zealand. Um, and these are the sorts of things that we can use as indicators of change. Um, which are otherwise really hard to measure. You know, like I was saying before, we've got these physical changes happening in our oceans. We've seen um, ocean heat waves and seen changing ocean currents, but it's really hard to get a gauge on what's happening to the, the reef systems and ecosystems. So some of these species might be those indicators we really need to be able to track that change. Okay, cool. So a lot of the time you're aging fish or you're, you're dating them, finding out how old they are. And Do you, do you use otoliths for that? How do you age fish all the time? Yeah, so we're not typically ageing these fish. Um, like Irene is uh, taking special note of whether they're juvenile or adult, which means, you know, are they just getting here and then dying or are they surviving over winter and getting to, you know, an age or a size where they could potentially be reproductive and that's, you know, potentially a different kind of indicator. Um, we do use otoliths in other parts of our research. So I've used it um, before for, uh, yes, understanding how old the fish are, but also how quickly they grow. So these are like, we call them ear bones often, but they're actually more like ear stones and they're like tree rings. So um, these stones build up layers through time when the fish are really young and dispersing through the open ocean, they'll accrue them every day. So you can see how quickly they grow over time. Um, but then as they get older, they get, get compacted like we see in a tree and you, you can actually age them through years. And it's on the basis of that technology, I guess, that we've started to understand um, some of our deep sea fishes in particular live for, you know, 100 years um, and some of them are not um, mature and able to reproduce until they're, you know, what is it, 20 or 40 years, I think, in the, in the case of um, Orange Ruffy. Don't quote me on that or quote me on that, but with that caveat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, good. Um, I read some um, discussion about what purpose those stones serve as well. Like some people sort of speculate that it can help with ballast and balance and there's all sorts of discussion about it. Have you guys looked at that much? Yeah, so what they're used for mostly, although fish are very good at changing up the way they use different structures on their body, but um, for the most part, otoliths are used as like an orientation kind of organ. So um, they, I guess like our middle ear, they help them understand where they are in the water column, um, whether they're upright or not. 
and um, it's sort of it's, it's connected to a whole bunch of nerves that'll help them sort of correct their their position in the water if need be. I don't know if other people have other understanding of that. That's that's my basic understanding. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you can use um, like the chemistry as well, right? I haven't done this before, but I've just read a whole bunch of papers about um, being able to use like the, the microchemistry at really small um, stages to be able to figure where those species had spent a lot of their time. So matching the chemistry of the water or their environment to the chemistry in the um, air bones, you can kind of figure out a bit of a pattern of where those species might have been. So when when guys find weird and wonderful fish like Blair does, um, do they do people often send you fish from different parts of New Zealand and things like that? Um, pretty much all of our data just comes from um, photos or if they are people that we know really well and they are obviously experts in their field, we'll also just um, we will use just written records or um, or just like hearsay records, but they have to have a whole lot of data um, around them um, and a whole bunch of detail around them. Um, a lot of the time we rely on um, a person's honesty about how big that fish was, how deep they were diving. So sparrows uh, are no good for this. <laughs> so I usually take about, what, five metres off the depth range and about 10 centimetres off the, yeah. the length of the fish. And that is a really cool thing about Irene's um, project is that, you know, all she needs actually is a photo, uh, a time stamp and uh, a location and, and that's it. Um, those records are really valuable. We, we don't advocate for people to go out and spare the fish necessarily um, because, you know, they are rare. Uh, a lot of them are rare just because they're naturally rare, not that they're like newly um, arriving. Um, but either way, it's kind of interesting to see how the biology plays out. You know, if, if they are newly arriving, um, let's, let's give them a go and see what happens. Um, and saying that, you know, when we do have a specimen, it's super valuable um, and that, that would be deposited into Auckland Museum or Te Papa. Um, we work closely with their fish teams and um, tissues I will take into my lab. So those tissues can be used to get a, give us like a genetic profile for that species um, and help us understand the relationship of that individual or that population to other, um, other populations around the world. Okay, wow. So... Of, of, of what, you know, which particular changes um, have you guys seen already uh, and and how are you studying them? <laughs> this is a me question, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I guess we're, um, we're just trying to put all this data together at the moment, but we, um, so the long-term kind of trends of temperature, ocean temperatures in New Zealand are a little bit different than in, um, in some of the hotspots that you get in um, Australia. So, you know, you get these areas like Tasmania and, and um, Western Australia that are warming really rapidly. Um, New Zealand is a little bit more complicated just because of the current patterns that we have around here. Um, there is evidence to suggest that places in the South Island are warming more quickly than in the North Island. Um, but in the North Island, we're seeing our winter temperatures increase, which means that although we might still always get these rare species turning up, the changes that we're probably likely to see are that they're going to be able to overwinter because our winters are not as cold um, and actually be able to establish populations and breed, which might actually long term have more of an impact than a whole lot of new species turning up the whole time. Um, so that's the most likely pattern that we're going to see. Um, the main thing that we're finding now is just that the amount of information and knowledge that um, has been provided by going into these, like what scientists will call novel data sets and, and mining this novel data, like it comes from all these people that have a whole bunch of, a, you know, experience on the water, is that we just didn't, we didn't even know the number of species that we had in New Zealand. So that's what we're, we're finding. I think we've got 
just from going through and, and looking at these photos and people supplying photos and specimens and stuff, we've, got, we've found 13 new to New Zealand species that had never been recorded in New Zealand before. Um, and they're fish. They're not like they're not like that, you know, tiny little invertebrates that are difficult to identify. They're fish. They're big fish. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty cool what um, what power there is out there for that. Okay, cool. Just having a couple of small issues with your sound at times, but um, I, I yeah, think I'm I got... trying to hold that hold that um, microphone as close as I can. But it's usually when I'm having a sip of beer. I think that it comes <laughs> <up>. <laughs> Love your honesty, and that's how all science should be conducted. I think. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Um, David, like uh, what what track, uh, you know, tracking along with some of these sort of these meta changes that are happening in the environment, are you seeing an impact in the benthos and some of the things you study? So similar to the story that Irene was describing, there are parts of the world that are undergoing much faster change than what we're seeing in New Zealand. So again, it's locations like Tasmania, Western Australia, uh, the coast of Britain. Um, but that's not to say those changes aren't coming for New Zealand. Um, we have the opportunity uh, to see what's going on overseas and perhaps prepare ourselves a little bit better. So some of the experiments that we're doing with uh, seaweed, so the main seaweed that supports our, our reef communities here in New Zealand, but also through the, the coast of New South Wales um, and along southern Australia, um, is just looking to see what potential there is for those species to adapt to climate change. Um, are they going to be able to become more uh, warm temperature tolerant? because um, without them our entire ecosystem tends to suffer um, so it's not so much focus on the fish but it does eventually cascade um, to affect the fishes as well changes it I actually heard you on a different podcast talking about um, the the big purple urchin that's in Tasmania and causing issues yeah so um, we have that species in New Zealand and it's really interesting because We've had it longer than Tasmania. So I think the story goes in Tasmania that over a period of 20 years, it decimated the abalone and lobster fishery. Um, in New Zealand, we've had that species for at least 100 years, but we haven't actually been actively surveying it. So we don't have a good gauge on whether the numbers are increasing or the range extent is increasing and that we might have those same issues that Tasmania had over here in New Zealand. And I don't know, I mean, Blair, you tell me, but um, anecdotally, I've heard that people reckon they are getting more abundant in New Zealand and are increasing in their range extent. Um, Which ones are so they? The, the purple urchin or Australian long-spined urchin is what they call the big black ones. The big black one that you tend to see at the offshore islands. You see it heaps at the Mokihinaos. Um, yeah, generally you, you see those when there's not the other ones. Eh? Like they don't seem to live next to each other too much. Yeah, or my experience is that they seem to push the other ones out into the open. So I don't know how long they last in that environment you get picked off yeah so that's that's one of those species we were like oh maybe we should have had an eye on that you know 10 years ago and um, we're not the only marine scientists saying that um, it's something I'm working on now um, but you know we're at a, a weaker stage now to be researching these sorts of things when the change has potentially already happened so that's where uh, Irene's work looking at these new arriving fish and Dave's work you know at the beginning stages of what might be a change is going to be super valuable I know Blair had some more um, questions about Kenner or sea urchin as well. Blair, you were curious to ask a question, I believe. I can't remember what the question was, mate. <laughs> oh, 
I, I was just trying to get you into the conversation. Well, I remember chatting with you a little bit about Ken, uh, Kenner Barons, sort of the, the phenomenon. I just thought that, that'd be a good thing to bring up. I didn't have a specific question. Oh, cool. cool. Well, can you describe what a Kenner Baron is and, um, and sort of what you know about them? Well, you basically where there's too many Kenners. Well, I guess it, it turns out like that. But it, there's, the, there's not enough predators on the Kenner, so the Kenner population explodes and then they take away all the the, the Eclonia, which is the, the kelp that's around, um, and then that takes away the habitat for the other fish, and then you end up with just basically rocks with Kenner on it, nothing else. Hmm. Okay, cool. And this is a, it's a phenomenon that's happened all around the world, so they have it in, in Norway, in the UK, the west coast of the United States, Australia, uh, South Africa. Um, and it's triggered by the same sort of mechanism. So as Blair was saying, as soon as you remove those large predators, and in particular things like uh, lobster or crayfish, um, it sort of sets off this cascade of interactions that results in um, kind of no longer having any predators and just exploding in numbers um, and eventually mowing down all of the kelp. Um, and it's really hard uh, to revert the system back once you get into that stage. Um, it sort of becomes like a like a magnet. Once it ends up in a in a state where the kinna dominate, it tends to attract the ecosystem back to it, as opposed to letting it go back to a state where it's dominated by kelp and um, crayfish. So it's it's a global challenge that we're all sort of facing at the moment. So has there been any research done into you know rehabilitating these sort of ecosystems? Yeah. So because it works like uh, that idea of a magnet. So once it gets trapped in this uh, kinner state, it tends to stay there. Just removing kinner is not going to solve the problem. And say, for instance, you started off with 10 kilos of crayfish that were uh, maintaining the reef in a, in a sort of kelpy, crayfishy kind of state. To return the ecosystem back, you might all of a sudden need 100 kilos of crayfish. So it's much harder to push the system out um, once it ends up in that stage. Um, and there has been success stories for it. So Tasmania was a big one where there was a local collective of uh, fishermen where they had uh, they had a, a gentleman's agreement that they wouldn't fish all of the large crayfish once they were translocated into a particular reef. Everyone kept to that agreement and they actually did see the, the kelp forest return to a, a healthier state. Um, marine reserves, another example where it's worked. Um, where you get large increases in, in lobster populations and decreases in urchins and everything sort of reverts back to that kelpy state. So potentially increasing or allowing uh, a, a crayfish or lobster population to return to a semi-virgin state can possibly re help repair those areas? Is that sort of what I'm hearing? Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't necessarily have to be um, what you would call sort of a virgin unfished state but certainly a, a healthier state than what most reefs are in now. Um, and, and you do see it return. It, it's hard, but it does. There are success stories and we should celebrate those. In, in New Zealand, where do you see this phenomenon a lot? Um, I don't know, Blair can help. Uh, quite a lot. Of, um, obviously, the Northland coast, I guess, would be my pick. And uh, Lee Coast, out from where I am now. Um, you see it all over the place, really. But what I find odd is you quite often find it in patches. You know, you'll, mm. you'll find a little spot and then you 200 metres down the, the coast is perfectly fine, well, perfectly fine looking uh, kelp forest. Yeah, the urchins themselves don't move very far and they don't like to move over sand. So that's why you can get that sort of patchy phenomenon going on. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, cool. 
If you've been spearfishing for longer than a year or two, you've probably heard a horror story of someone dying, likely from shallow water blackout. This is not uncommon. Almost every year people die spearfishing, doing what they love. And uh, a lot of these accidents are avoidable. And you can learn some simple techniques in order to minimize your chances of injury or blackout spearfishing by simply going to freedivingsafety.com and doing the free safety course there taught by Ted Hardy from Immersion Freediving. Now the freediving safety course is comprehensive and it will not only make you a safer spearer but it will also to help you to have more fun and take home more fish. Check it out, freedivingsafety.com. I sort of, um, for this interview I prepared like a, a little bit of like formal questions with regards to marine biology. Do you guys mind asking a few, answering a few of my sort of basic bananas marine biology questions? Sure, we can try. Yeah, we can try. Oh, yeah, yeah. No <laughs> cool. Like one thing, like when I started reading, was learning a lot about the food chain and you know just basic sort of concepts like equilibrium and how how you know we impact on that and how things can fall out of it. Like we were just talking about kinabarans. I think that's an interesting example. But can you walk us through the food chain uh, in the ocean in particular? Looking yeah, at each other, yeah, yeah, sorry. I should I should have picked some. Maybe <laughs> who wants to go? Libby? No, I'm volunteering. I think Dave. I think Dave. <laughs> All right, thanks, Dave. Yeah. yeah go Dave. Thanks, Dave. Dave. <laughs> well, I guess that um, the Kinnebaran example is a good one where what we tend to see in marine ecosystems is that things are very strongly connected. So as soon as you move one of the pieces on the chessboard, it influences how everything else operates. And there's all of these, while there are sort of direct interactions between say the predator and the thing it is eating, its prey, um, that uh, old concept of uh, an enemy of my enemy is my friend plays out really strongly in marine food chains. So something that is eating your predator is actually gonna be beneficial to you. Um, so that's why when, you know, for instance, just the, the removal of crayfish results in an increase in kelp. Um, a decrease we, in kelp. Sorry, a decrease <laughs> in kelp. Um, it's those indirect interactions that often um, result to be uh, quite influential in how marine ecosystems function. So it's it's not just focusing on the direct stuff, um, but those indirect things um, can be quite important as well. Yeah, awesome. So. There's all these different technical na names for the relationships between, you know, flora and fauna or whatever, all, all the different organi organisms. So I don't want to get too deep into that. But where does the food chain, where does it all start in the ocean? Light. So it all starts with um, what light can provide, particularly for um, phytoplankton. Um, so... It all starts with light, and that's also the, the case for uh, kelps and corals. Uh, without light, they really do tend to struggle. So that's why one of the, the major problems that we're seeing around coastal ecosystems around the world is the increase in the amount of sediment. Yes, that does uh, coat um, surfaces and makes it difficult for things to live, but also limits the amount of light that's penetrating to depth. And because of that, we're seeing way lower productivity um, across all of the world's oceans. I just say generally, um, you know, we have a handle on these sorts of relationships that we see in the ocean from what we know of the land, but the ocean is a lot more complex. There's a lot more biodiversity going on. There's a lot more diversity. And I don't think 
us being terrestrial beings <laughs> really understand that or can relate to that very well. Um, it's a massive 3D environment and uh, there's, like I said, there's so much biodiversity there and things move differently. The physics is all different. The chemistry is all different. And I, I just think that, you know, so as a sparrow, you spend a bit of time in the water, right? And you, you get to feel like you know it, but you're always, you're never surprised if you see something new. And I don't think there's many people who could say that about the land. Um, and it makes it really hard for us to relate to how things work. That's why it's so exciting to be a marine biologist. It's, there's so many unknowns. You're just continually surprised. And um, it also makes it a really hard space to, to manage. So we don't draw lines on the ocean the same way we do on the land. Um, we don't have a strong sense of ownership or governance. Um, there are parts of our ocean which aren't governed by any nation. They're just, you know, the high seas. Anyone can do anything there, basically. Um, so we don't have the right kind of, number one, we don't understand it. We don't know how to govern it. And um, we also find it really easy to detach ourselves from it. So it's very easy to drop some rubbish under the surface of the ocean and just believe that it's not there anymore. Um, you can't do that in your own backyard, right? It's just... Uh, it's really hard to, to get your head around. Yeah, for sure. And 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 so Sparrows are kind of well positioned to help out with some of the marine biology research projects and that going around. I've talked to people before about citizen science and it kind of sounds a little bit like the project that you're doing is using some of those concepts as well. So, I mean, how can Sparrows get more involved with um, getting, you know, like in, in these projects and, and sort of contributing? Well, the, I guess the, the biggest thing is is just keep doing what they're doing. Like, it, it keep going out there once we're once we're all out of lockdown, get back out there again. Um, but just and just remembering that that if they see something unusual, not to just be like, oh yeah, that's cool, it's unusual. But that 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 observation can actually have a really um, can actually be really valuable. So to seek out um, a way to contribute that um, if they want to do that is really cool. Um, and also, um, it's all about us having that two-way interaction too, right? Not just, oh yeah, give us all your records, but if we can help out in any way as well um, by identifying weird things or if somebody goes, oh, I've seen this here, is, is it where it normally occurs? Um, if we can have that kind of two-way interaction is really cool. But on a kind of practical level, um, just putting, um, if you if they find any weird fish, um, take a photo of it or, um, yeah, if they have a specimen that they might have caught at some point or speared at some point, um, contact a museum because most of the time the museums would be really interested especially if it's something really weird um, but mostly just take a photo or a video most a lot of sparrows have you know gopros or um, action cameras or something on them nowadays um, or even if it's a photo you know a gloating photo back up on deck <laughs> um, uh, just send them through if they find something weird especially if it's a fish or a weird invertebrate send it through that what's that fish facebook page or get in touch with people like like blair or um or John or people that they know um, are in contact with the scientists and, and make sure they share it because there's no there's no dumb info to share. Like all of it's really important to us. So I'll, I'll link up what's that fish in, in today's show notes so people can come and have a look. Are you guys aware of um, some of these kind of 
interactions between marine biologists and and citizen science and sparrows and stuff in other parts of the world as well or is there a list of resources i could link up yeah so i guess we've modeled um a lot of what we do on um red map in australia so and i know that they've gone kind of global um and it's a similar concept like take a photo or um and send it in and they'll give you a bit of information be able to id things for you and actually tell you if it's out of range or inside of their range um yeah, so Redmap Australia, um, and I think that they are also um, have just started uh, in the states or are looking to expand in the states and looking to go global as well. So, um, yeah, there's definitely resources out there, and there's also um, yeah, there's also iNaturalist, um, which is here in New Zealand. Not sure if that's in Australia as well, which is another platform to um, be able to get species ID'd and and record things. Um, it's a little bit more difficult to use I think than Redmap is um, and not quite as interactive but it is a really good place to just deposit um, data and sightings as well. Cool well if you guys um, find any more or anything like that along the way um, send them to me and I'll link them up in today's show notes so it'll be like noobspero.com forward slash marine that'll do and then um, and I'll, I'll have a bunch of I'll have a bunch of uh, um, profiles and and groups and stuff people can join and check out there so that'll be cool um another really intriguing idea and and it's but it's also something that spiros possibly have an impact on is um shifting baseline phenomena like um blair and i were chatting a little bit about it the other day but could you explain or could one of you explain what shifting baseline phenomena is and how it sort of plays out with an example yeah, so there's kind of two meanings to that. So the, the first is that we tend to target um, fish that give us more bang for our buck, so bigger fish, and that's sort of a human thing. Um, so that means that often what we tend to do on a reef system is we fish out all the, the big species first, and then we end up fishing down the food chain in a way. So we start then targeting smaller and smaller species. But we also see that within a species, um, if you start taking all of the large individuals out of that population, um, it leaves only the small ones to breed. So over time, evolutionarily, um, that species will become smaller. And that's something that we know from, I guess, um, uh, line fishing competitions all around the world. It's quite well described. Um, and those bigger fish, of course, are what we think in most species, the more fecund. So they're ones um, that tend to have more babies. They're more capable of having more babies. Um, so in terms of their bang for buck, <laughs> they're more valuable in the population um, than not. But, you know, it's such an ingrained human thing. Um, we're not going to point the finger at people who do it. I think it's really on, um, you know, our governance structures and authorities to, to, to come up with a, a better solution for how we're treating these resources. So you guys have all met Blair. You'd, you'd guess that he's fairly fecund. <laughs> I don't know if it, it doesn't extend well, no, to humans. Any proof of that, <laughs> 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 the story is the wife's actually pregnant right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can believe it. Well, you're winning the circle <laughs> <laughs> Congrats, Blair. Um, triplets, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> 12 pounds each. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's awesome. Just got a lot louder. <laughs> I feel like the I feel like the crickets um, contributed more to the chat than Blair, um, but <laughs> but that's all right. I was expecting that. Um, all right. <laughs> I've actually just been um, Long John, John Anderson's literally just been messaging me so I've been trying to do that at the same time he just sent through a fish from um, down south 
that um, Dwayne Herbert, I think, had uh, spared, but it's nothing that exciting. I would have shared, I would have shared it with you if it was something exciting, but you know, it's not really. It's just a red bait. We're <laughs> uh, excited red bait about every fish. In, uh, <laughs> I tried to question Blair about bait and stuff, and um, he didn't really give me a, a solid answer. It's kind of a like bait's a weird thing. We just sort of take it for granted, and none of us sort of think about it. I mean, if you've been in the water a long time, you know what's going to be around. Maybe different species of bait, but it's something I find myself not even knowing. I don't even know the names for most of the species and stuff like that. Like, um, do you got? Have you guys spent much time researching bait? Bait numbers oh, no. and sizes, distribution. Even the the IDs are, are a challenge for me. Um, those little fishes is a. It's a real talent to be able to tell them all apart. Um, yeah, totally. Maybe Libby or Irene, but for the most part, they're just bait, um, and there's usually bigger fish behind them. Yeah. <laughs> you have to, I like count count out every little fin ray, and then look at the number of scales along the lateral line, and you know, there's a whole bunch of those kind of things that you need to do. And unless you're really, really committed, um, or yeah, getting paid to do it, <laughs> I guess you're not going to end up doing that. Um, a lot of the time, um, yeah. But we do, we do. Um, part of my um, work is looking at larval fish as well, so I do spend a fair bit of time doing that um, with some of the taxonomists at the museum. Um, but yeah, most of the time, it's um, yeah, surprisingly the shiny blue fish that look like every other fish that are actually the really interesting ones. So um, Blair was telling me about this. There's a four-volume set of books that came out from Te Papa. Um, with with a fairly comprehensive list of New Zealand species, he he mentioned there was like nearly 150 species on there or something. Um, can you guys? 12? Uh, yeah, 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 1,200. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that would, must get pretty pedantic with regards to bait and you know mm. <laughs> o- yeah. items smaller in the food chain. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, can you buy them online or anything? Yeah, you can buy them through the Te Papa uh, bookstore, I think. So it's it's 11 mm. kgs worth of book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the postage will, will cost you a bit potentially. I've sent some overseas to, to colleagues. But yeah, beautiful books um, published in, I think it was 2015. So the most up to date sort of knowledge of our, our fish fauna. Um, since that book came out, I think we've added another 100 species. So between, you know, Irene's new records and then also just, you know, the, the time it takes to describe new things, like completely new species to science that we're still discovering um, in New Zealand waters. So, um, yeah, pretty cool. Um, but yeah, but by all yeah. means, if, if you want to, uh, if you've managed to uh, spear a little bait fish or it's come up in a net or something, um, through those books you can work out exactly what it is. So it's set up as a, a set of sort of yes-no questions. Does it have this many spines? Look here for this, look here for that. And you can eventually sort of whittle it down to what species you've got uh, in your hand. But it is, for some groups, it's more difficult than for others. Um Beautiful book, so. Species ID um, is, a, is something that plagues a lot of, like, new sparrows, and, and it's particularly when they're spearing new areas and, and people that are learning. Like, we have issues with, you know, spearing undersized fish, maybe oversized fish, spearing things out of season, you know. And these are quite common mistakes among you guys, and then they make the mistake of posting it on social media, and then the rest of the spearfishing community <laughs> just absolutely goes to town on them. Um, I've heard of a few efforts, like I've got a friend of mine at the moment trying to create an app where it sort of collates a lot of the data with pictures of the species underwater and then it gets the local area laws and stuff. It's quite a big exercise and he's trying to help with that effort, but it's kind of a side project. Um, 
Like when you when you guys think about species ID, uh, besides buying an eleven volume, <laughs> oh sorry, an eleven kg four volume <laughs> like thing of books, is there another way you, you've thought of to sort of help people with that? I guess Irene's work, we've purposely chosen fish that are kind of easily identified. So it doesn't help so much with the the sparrows, I guess, knowing whether they've done bad or not. But it definitely tells you positively what certain things are and why they might be interesting. Um, So Irene has been working with one of our other students, Katie, to collate a bit of a resource around that, which will be um, posted on WhatsApp Fish. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, There's one fish here in New Zealand that... Uh, every summer turns up on the on the forums. It's uh, the common name is a bluefish. It's quite rare, oh, no. uh, and it's this giant. Uh, it looks like a blue mountain. Blue That's fish. what most people yeah. usually confuse it with. They come back to the boat with this beaming smile. I've just shot the biggest bowmow I've ever seen. Um, post it on social media, and then there's this uh, rage from from the rest of the community. So I guess that does. Uh, there's a bit of education that comes along with that. Um, you do feel sorry for the person who genuinely didn't know. Yeah. Consolation prize, <laughs> but, though, is that we are interested in those records. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, a, a photo would do, but a photo yeah. of a freshly caught mm. one, we understand, and we're not going to be the ones that come down on you. Yeah, and what <laughs> we'll you just the described um, that your mate is doing is awesome. I mean, those, yeah. those sorts of resources are really, really valuable. Um, yeah, I think some of the new, like New Zealand agencies just haven't done a very good job of that. Like there are um, like fisheries apps and stuff out there to help people, but they're not incredibly user friendly or easy to access. And also, I think somebody that's actually in the community doing that or assisting with it really helps because they'll know, um, you know, they will have heard or seen these things on social media, and they'll know which species they really need to spend some time making sure people know of as well. In my experience, government agencies seldom do anything well. But uh, <laughs> you know. the current apps yeah. are terrible. Yeah. So oh, bad. look. Sometimes they get it right, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of learning between different governments and places. Like I'm not saying it's much different in the private sector either. But you know, like you, surely by now there'd be a best practice way of doing this, and we can just distribute it to the rest of the world. But anyway, that's just little old me on a podcast with a big mouth. So what do I? Mean? <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to talk about just a bit of a segue, um, parasites and disease in fish. Um, you guys are obviously, you know, exposed to what happens sort of with fish in your neck of the woods. Um, what, have you, what have you seen? What do you know about it? And so what are some common causes and, and reasons why it happens? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm just chucking this fish I, out. I'm, I'm, I'm chucking these questions out without directing at anyone, just assuming you guys will work it out. Uh. I can say some things that are slightly relevant to what you've just said. Mm. Okay, um, cool. <laughs> I love slightly relevant answers. It's fantastic. Our fish definitely have parasites. And uh, some of the recent work that we've been doing up in Rangitahua, uh, the Kermitic Islands, um, we actually managed to come across uh, the, the cleaner wrasse which is the first record of it in New Zealand. So this is the striped cleaner ass that people will be familiar with in tropical reefs, not so much New Zealand rocky reefs like we've got around the Kermitex. But um, even so, that was pretty interesting. So that, that was cleaning off uh, parasites in the same way that a lot of our, um, I guess, juvenile wrasses will do. You guys will probably see that um, some of the smaller guys on the reef will be cleaning the bigger guys from a different species. Um, but, yeah, I don't know so much about the parasites themselves, to be honest. Um, there are... I guess some toxins that we can get from fishes, which we don't have around mainland New Zealand yet that we know of, but 
Um, we have detected uh, Sigatera, for instance, up in uh, the Kermadec Islands. So it's a marine reserve up there, so there's no issue with people getting sick from eating those fish that have that toxin. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah, natural defense. That's how we do our marine reserves, by the way. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but, but, you know, that's something to keep an eye on. Maybe, you know, we're talking about these climate changes. Um, that might be something in New Zealand's future where we have Sigatera to worry about and a lot of our fishes that, you know, we're spear fishing and fishing around mainland New Zealand. Mm-hmm. That's the extent of my knowledge around diseases. Yeah, you go. <laughs> <laughs> this is from when we were at uni, Libby. Um, so Libby and Dave and I all kind of went through university together. Um, and Libby and I, I think it was you and I anyway, um, we did a parasite lab um, with fishes. Um, yeah, we're having, dissect, we're having to dissect these um, barracuda. Barracuda in New Zealand are absolutely full of like worms in the flesh. Um, people here don't really eat them. Um, and we did this hideous lab. Um, these barracuda just crawling with like worms in the flesh. And then we went and did a night dive like the night after. And um, it was a full moon and we were diving and um, I think we sat on the bottom um, for a while and we turned our torches on. All of a sudden, all these polychaete worms, these massive worms started coming out and swimming towards our torches um, in the middle of the night and like hitting us in the face and stuff like that. It was absolute nightmare stuff, especially after seeing like these parasites in the (laughs) 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 thing. I was sitting there just absolutely freaking out. I don't know what Libby was up to. (laughs) I was freaking out because all these massive worms are swimming at us and these torches. So trying to turn our torches off and I'm like, oh, they're going to burrow into my flesh. Um, <laughs> so I've learned that very... those worms we don't need to worry about, but no. what I do know from teaching uh, fish parasitology at uni is that um, you know, there's a good reason why a lot of people don't, or a lot of cultures don't eat raw fish. There certainly are parasites we can contract from eating raw fish. So you know, with that knowledge, you, you choose your path, I guess. Mm. Yeah, try not to look at parasites ever again. <laughs> the experience um, with the worms at night time sounds oddly like um, something like Blair's dive buddies describe when they go diving with them. But um, <laughs> yeah, like I've never heard them compared to a parasite, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, it just got really loud. Turn, turn your torch off. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to your cricket there, Blair? It just got yeah, loud. Stop. <laughs> so the cur- I think it the- actually stopped for a second. <laughs> <laughs> it actually it has it's gone. What did you do to it, Blair? The Kermadec the Islands are a unique part of the world for a few reasons. Um, can you guys just sort of talk a little bit about um, what makes them unique? It's it's a really sort of weird and wonderful place. So the they're at a, a, a latitude in the world where you end up with crappy kelps and crappy corals and confused fish. Um, things aren't really used to playing uh, or interacting with each other. So It's like a really mean experiment that nature's playing on them. Yeah, and also one of the things that makes it really interesting um, for me is there are no lobsters and there never have been to the best of our knowledge. And we don't have any of the big uh, breams, so the what we call snapper here in New Zealand, so the big predators of urchins. So you have this sort of seascape covered with uh, with urchins, kelps, and corals all in the same place. It's really quite bizarre. Um, heaps and heaps of kingfish, but all of them super skinny. So if you have a look at photos of them, the stomachs are actually inverted rather than sort of distended below. So there's lots of them, but none of them are doing particularly well. And that's not necessarily because there's a lack of bait around. Huge schools of Mau Mau and Demozels and all sorts of fishes like that. But there's something there's something odd uh, going on up there. Um, 
it's also got the, the world's largest uh, population of uh, black spotted grouper. These things are like big giant Labradors. So if you sit on the bottom, they'll just come up and sit on your shoulder and just sort of watch what you're doing in front of you. You just sort of feel this big, giant, creepy eye right beside you. <laughs> and then they start brushing up against you. I think they're trying to brush parasites off themselves on you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And don't forget about the limpets. You're in the a limpet zone and you didn't say anything about the limpets in Germany. <laughs> yeah, there's these, there's these giant limpets um, as big as power. And uh, so they, they're all over the intertidal and they dominate. Like there's so many of them that the, um, the intertidal looks like it's, I don't know, like a golf ball. It's just covered with all these dimples of limpets. And uh, they... <laughs> <Green reserve. laughs> but um, they're pretty neat. So they, they're these massive limpets and then there'll be a whole bunch of little limpets sitting on top. So they, I don't know whether they're their family or whether they're their mates. Um, we know that the male limpets are the small ones. Anyway, we've got a student working on that, so I'll keep you posted because I know that'll be like the next item on your um, podcast for sure. Yeah, yeah a giant limpet <laughs> podcast. That'd be great. <laughs> but in all seriousness, when we go to the Kemetic Islands, I mean, every time we go, we're discovering or finding a new fish for New Zealand. So they're not new species to science necessarily, but they're new records for New Zealand waters. And, you know, some of the places we're going, we're going to the same place year after year in some cases, and we know that that fish that is there now must have arrived over the past year. Yeah, So they're... we're seeing new things arriving all the time, and for that reason we think it's super interesting. It's going to be one of those places that could act as a gauge for the rest of the world for how things are changing globally. Without those um, local impacts like fishing, which, you know, confuse those signals that we, we think are you know, due to tr climate change, we often can't tease out, oh, but is it fishing or is it sedimentation? The Comedic Islands are somewhere where we don't have those other stresses, but, you know, certainly it's not immune to those global changes. So what we see there is, um, is really interesting and might act as a gauge. And what's your opinion on the Queensland groper in New Zealand? Do they come here when they're big or do they come here when they're babies? So Malcolm um, Francis suggested that he, he reckons they, um, so they are like pelagic um, and associate with like marine debris for a really long time, like harpuka and um, bass and stuff do as well. So puka and bass will be pelagic until they're about 45 centimetres sometimes. Um, so he thinks that in theory they are coming over as vagrants, um, as large fish but they don't mature so they're still juveniles the ones that we see in New Zealand they don't mature until they're like one meter and a half long or something like that so a lot of the ones that we're seeing here are still juveniles it's just that they're big juveniles um, but they're probably probably associating with uh, marine debris or flotsam or something like that and getting close to you know close to the coast and then think hearing hearing the reef and going yeah I'm going for a swim um, finding the reef <laughs> I love your finding Nemo type commentary there on on, on the life and times of the of the Australian groper. Uh, I'm going to butcher the word. Is it anthropomorphization or something? Like anthropomorphism, is that right? Where we, it sounds yeah. about right. I know what you're trying to say. I'm not where, sure. Where, <laughs> where, where, I butcher where we, it as well. Yeah, where, where we watch like Bambi and then all of a sudden we can't shoot deer anymore because they have, you know, the characteristics of a human and we think of them as people. Do you guys think that that's happening in the in the marine world? Is it probably a more of a philosophical question than anything. Uh, but. I definitely suffer from that. So yeah, like same. I was saying before, the sparing I do is for science typically. <laughs> and so often it means I'm um, going back to the same reef time after time. And if I get to know a fish, 
if I've looked it in the eye, if it's turned over and turned around and, and watched me as I was about to shoot it, um, there's no way I can get that fish. Uh, <laughs> I move on to the next one. <laughs> so I don't think that, um, you know, as pragmatic as we try and be as scientists, we're not immune to these things. And uh, I think that definitely that is happening increasingly in the marine environment as we, I guess, uh, discover it and try and educate others about it. I think it's one of the tools we use is to, to make people feel like these are little humans running around in the underwater <laughs> world. And don't you want to be a fish? Libby almost disowned me when I shot her pet uh, fish on a reef in Timor. Oh, <laughs> you went what? <laughs> no way. This is one of the reasons that Crispin didn't join us because he doesn't. He likes. He, he loves this fish. Likes taking photos of fish. Like going back, we've got one fish here that's a subtropical fish that is only known from like three records in New Zealand, and it's been here for in this one spot that we go diving for about a year and a half. We keep going back and visiting it, and um, taking photos of it. Um, yeah, we'd be gutted if that that thing disappeared, um, which it will do at some point, obviously. But yeah. Yeah, I guess if you if you're studying something you really love, um, it's, it becomes hard to look at dead ones. <laughs> but you gotta, you know, you, these specimens and and this information is you kind of have to look at it from take a step back and look at it from the bigger picture as well a lot of the time. So yeah, and and things are tasty like mahi mahi, a beautiful fish, <laughs> but they're also crazy yum. They're like my conflict fish. Um, yeah, I love them. They're beautiful, but they're so delicious. So you know, it's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> I love talking to, to scientists that spearfish as well. It makes it makes the conversation a lot easier. You know. What I mean? <laughs> Guys, when it's time to upgrade your fins, you want to buy something that you won't kick yourself for in five years. And I've been wearing my, the same set of penetrator fins for five years. And I'm not the only one. Uh, legendary Australian spearer Ian Puckridge wears them, freediving record holder Ben Eckhart, and Hawaii's Justin Lee. There's a whole host of spearers that love and use penetrator fins. Check them out at penetratorfins.com. If you want to purchase, use the code NoobSpearo for a limited time only. You'll save $25 on any purchase. Check it out, penetratorfins.com. I love hearing spearfishing adventures. I love hearing about the challenges, the amazing moments, the special people, the fish, the crew, the prep, the highlights. I love the whole lot. And there's another place where you can hear and read about people's spearfishing adventures, people just like you. Check it out, spearingmagazine.com. Every story is full of those stoked moments that fuel the fire and get you excited for your next spearfishing adventure. Check it out at spearingmagazine.com. Um, I've got a couple more questions to ask. Um, like, what, what, what do you guys perceive as the, the biggest threats to the marine environment? So, because part of what's driving this is you guys, we're talking about, um, you know, a lot of fisheries are being shut down to recreational fishing and, and, you know, like particularly in, you know, westernised parts of the world, there's a there's a perception in the public that the fishing in general is kind of evil. Um, but I, I think, you know, probably as scientists, you guys have talked about some of the other threats like global warming and increased sedimentation. Um, in your minds, are, are they the three biggest threats to our marine environment, overfishing, sedimentation and, and global warming? To me, global warming is like what's happening right now around the world with the pandemic. So, you know, we, we knew that, you know, our health systems needed upgrading. We knew there were all these different things that we needed to do to, to prepare ourselves for, you know, some kind of disaster. I think we know all the right things we should be doing in the marine environment, but we're not ready for the time when, you know, we have some massive heat wave and all the kelp dies um, or, 
you know, we get this urchin taking off and eating all the kelp. Um, I think we can't anticipate those things and we, we need to be more ready than we currently are. And um, to do that, we need to, to be more on top of those local pressures for things like the, the fishing and um, sedimentation, making sure that we put our marine systems in the best position they can possibly be in to try and combat some of these things that we just don't have control over, the same way we don't have control really over this pandemic. Is, is sedimentation sort of, is one of the root causes mostly agriculture? Land use change, so not uh, not always agriculture. So one of the big problems that we have in the part of Auckland where we're living is um, we have subdivi- subdivisions uh, going up day on day. Um, and it's the, the practices which are used when they build those subdivisions that result in massive plumes of sediment going out into the into the Hauraki Gulf. Um, so agriculture does contribute, but they're not the only ones. And to sort of pin it on one group is it not fair um, necessarily. But um, I think, you know, fishing does have a massive impact on our uh, marine environment, but there are some success stories uh, where we have been able to turn it around. Yeah, I'm um, not against fishing at all. Yeah, and no, I think those no. should be celebrated and... The, the thing that gets frustrating is when we don't learn from those success stories and we sort of slip back into those old habits again. Um, and, you know, in, in different parts of the world, it, it's often uh, local um, management that actually results in the best results um, for those local areas. So giving people a little bit of uh, ownership and making them feel responsible for their patch is a really good thing, I think. Um, for managing fisheries, it's just a difficult. It's a it's a difficult and a time pay, uh, staking process. I think the um, you know, but what we're talking about is as a management of the resource, you know, uh, rather rather than a strict sort of preservation. Like there's because I think some people tout this idea that you know the ocean would be completely you know it would be better if we just left it alone and did nothing with it. But um, you know, it's a huge source of protein for people, and it's. It's great fun as well, and I think when it's done right, it can be done sustainably. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the thing that I was yeah yeah gonna say as well is that there seems to be in a lot of groups. Like I don't know if I'm just being really positive, um, but in a lot of groups there does seem to be this movement towards more um kind of a sustenance, you know, fishing, um, not going out and getting your limit, just going out. And I think spear fishing is a really nice example of that. A lot of the time, you go out, you target your fish, you know what you're gonna go out and get, you get that and you go home um, and you don't have like, you know, your freezer full of um, 300 crayfish that are going off because you just can. Um, and it seems like, you know, through social media and through people getting blasted for shooting the wrong fish or putting up death pile photos, there does seem to be like this kind of movement from within that, you know, is a more sustainable approach to fishing and, and spearfishing. And um, I think that would that's a really important part of it as well. You can have this legislation and people telling you what to do, but when you've got that like um, that ownership like Dave was talking about and that feeling that you are you know your values and how you're contributing to it I think that's really important as well. I think it's really human to be part of something like you, you want to be part of the ecosystem we very much are and um, you know if we're in a place where we can take from it what we know it can withstand we're in the best position we could be. Love it. Hey, it's an awesome note to finish on guys I'm just conscious of time um, I was going to ask you one more question each um, just basically, where can people find you, each of you on social media, and what would be sort of one resource that you would maybe recommend to Sparrows to learn more about marine biology and some of the other concepts and research that you guys are doing and talking about today? 
<laughs> so mine's really easy. Just go to that What's That Fish New Zealand Facebook page. <laughs> that you'll find me, me Libby and um, Libby and I are admins on that page, so you'll be able to find us if you message us that way. Um, and also, hopefully, there's some resources there. Um, and yeah, any um, questions that people have, um, we're online a lot. So um, yeah, that's probably the easiest way to find me directly. Cool. Thanks, Ari. Uh, I'm not very active on uh, social media. I'm <laughs> a bit of a dinosaur when it comes to that, but uh, I am active on Facebook, um, and that would be the best way uh, to contact me. And I just um, support what Irene said about uh, what's that fish. Um, the more people that interact with it, the better it gets, and it um, it can be that sort of educational resource um, so that people can start to figure out, you know, what are the weird fish and you know, their, their own intuition about what's out of place in an ecosystem, they can go back and just um, double-check whether it was or it wasn't. Cool. Yeah, it's wicked. It's, and you believe in it so much, you, you're signing up as an admin too, Dave, eh? <laughs> yeah, I just get in the way. Libby and Irene do all the hard work, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I just... a weird girl. <laughs> <laughs> That's Not right. <laughs> Oh, the sliver lobster was cool though. Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah, I <love> that. <laughs> I'll also point out that what's that fish is not just for fishes. So uh, there's some no, cool urchins out great. there. So check them out on the Facebook page. And just a just a um, little side note is that what's that fish is really Irene and my I guess testing ground for what we need to do next. Not only as scientists, but also for you guys. You know, we want this to be something that has community buy-in and you know that that builds momentum in New Zealand and means that we have this two-way conversation going on all the time. So, um, you know, watch this space because we hope that we're going to be building bigger and better things. Um, but also let us know if you've got ideas for how we could be doing things better. Um, so I'm just going to capitalise on what Irene already said and say, what's that fish? <laughs> cool. I might, um, you know, it, it might be a really good example for people in other parts of the world that listen to the show to come and have a look at what you guys are doing and maybe replicate it in their part of the world, you know. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a really cool pro, um, trial project by the sounds of it. So what's that fish on Facebook? I'll link that up today. Um, Blair, where can, where can we find you apart from in a parasitic relationship? As a dive buddy. I'm again not, not that active to be honest. On uh, Instagram on B L R H R B or yep. um there's a spearfishing group called NZ Spiro Community. So mm. either of those two really. Spiro Tech as well. I feel like I've I've just been really nasty to you today, Blair. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but Sparrow Tech's another um, cool group as well, so I'll link up all of that. NZ Sparrow community is fantastic. It's got to be one of the one one of the best um, engaging groups for Sparrows I'm part of. So one thing I just want to say is that um, don't at all be afraid to talk to us or assume that we know anything because we're scientists. I mean, we mm -hmm. are. What makes us scientists is that we're just cur curious humans, the same way you guys are, um, and you actually probably know a lot more about the marine environment than we do. So. You know, it's a two-way conversation, but it's also a two-way learning. Um, you guys have natural history knowledge that we would never be able to gain in our lifetime, um, and we really appreciate that, and it will hopefully make our work that much better for all of you. <laughs> awesome. It's a, it's a good attitude to have in any relationship, I think, when you, you know, don't assume that you have all the knowledge and everyone can learn from each other. So very cool, guys. Uh, what's that fish group on Facebook? So I'll wrap the interview up and uh, just wanted to thank you guys for joining me. It's, it's been a real privilege. Thank you for the time. Yeah, thanks for your time. Nice to chat. Yeah, thanks for having us.
Hey guys, uh, again, apologies for some of the slips with sound quality today. Perhaps it wasn't um, the greatest. It was a multi-way call, as you can imagine. Uh, trying to coordinate good sound quality like that is uh, a little difficult. Nevertheless, there was uh, a ton of good information in there. I just uh, wanted to thank uh, Irene, Libby and David and, and of course Blair for, for helping me to... Um, organize the thing and, and the scientists for taking the time to jump on the show and share out all the awesome stuff they're working on and um, tell you guys about how you can get involved like with citizen science initiatives and stuff so there'll be a ton of stuff linked up in today's uh, show notes so yeah awesome um, oh we are off in two weeks to talk with the benthic boys the benthic boys also uh, the Florida Keys area Mike Paula and Joe D'Agostino um, these guys are cool uh, we talk heaps about equipment and tra- transitioning from scuba so maybe you're a scuba diver and you want to transition into free dive spearfishing uh, this could be an episode for you but there's a ton of mad info in there and um, these guys were sitting in the back floor of their shop and uh, someone was working away on gear it was a really cool uh, thing I might publish the video for that as well but all, all good um, catch you in a couple of weeks um, as usual go to noobspero.com forward slash more stoke to sign up with our email newsletter I'll catch you in two weeks Jeepers spearfishing has to be the most addictive thing it takes over if you're not actually out there spearfishing you're talking about spearfishing you're listening to spearfishing and you're always shopping for spearfishing gear today's sponsor comes in super handy for that spearfishing.com.au you can check out whole bunch of great brands. They've got brands on there like Rob Allen, Rife Picasso, Salvamas, Borisar, Boshat, Shark Shield. The list just keeps going. Now, I love the, the shopping experience at spearfishing.com.au. They've been sponsoring this show since episode 18. I would encourage you to head over there, check out equipment, whole range, huge range of equipment. Check out the reviews. If you do decide to purchase something, use the code NoobSpero on any purchase over 200 and save yourself $20. Spearfishing.com.au. Support the Noob Spiro podcast. You can't go wrong.